TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome back to Steele Talking. I'm your host, Gerilyn Steele. And I'm very excited about this next uh, in- interview because, really, he's quite a remarkable man. His name is Dr. John Richard Saylor, and he is joining us. Why? Well, think about it. Minnesota is the land of 14,000 lakes. But what can we learn from lakes? I never thought about that question. Did you? Well, like us, he says, lakes are born, they live, and they die. From their often dramatic formations to their ultimate disappearances, lakes live extraordinary lives. John Richard Saylor Ph.D., traces the natural history of these remarkable still waters in his new book, Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death. Dr. Saylor is a professor of mechanical engineering at Clemson University, and he has researched the phenomena that occur at the interface between air and water. He joins us now on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. Welcome so much, Dr. Saylor. Welcome to Steel Talking. Well, thanks so much for having me, Gerilyn. How did it ever come to be that you found this interesting? Is this something, as a young boy, that you thought, hey, fascinating? No, not at all. Uh, As you probably imagine, a a professor of mechanical engineering uh, doesn't normally do research on lakes. It's not really in our wheelhouse. Um, uh, But I happened to get involved in a project uh, studying uh, the evaporation of water from lake surfaces, and it was sort of a, a red herring kind of project. And uh, when it came time to to get this published, to you know, to write a paper summarizing our results, I found myself in the position of having to get uh, spun up on lakes, you know, at least so I knew the vocabulary and could write a paper on it. And probably like most of your readers, I, I thought lakes were great. You know, it's great to to vacation on them, swim in them, canoe in them, etc. Uh, but I didn't think they were, you know, fascinating or anything like that. I just thought they were pleasant places to be. Um, but in the process of learning about lakes, I kept finding fascinating, wonderful things about them, mysterious, mysterious things about them, and even things about them which are, are frankly quite dangerous. You know, you are a prolific writer, and I know that you have probably thought, my goodness, I did not see this for my life. (laughs) Most people like you would say, I didn't see this for my life. Yet this is so fascinating to even me. I didn't know any of this. And as I've been researching and watching videos of you and trying to figure out, oh, all the questions I want to ask you, tell me what is most important about your research when it comes to lakes. So um, I, I think that the thing in, in the book that I, I think is most fascinating re- regarding lakes is a specific kind of lakes uh, called the Carolina Bays. Now, now these don't exist in Minnesota. They exist on the, on the East Coast. 
um, anywhere from southern New Jersey to northern Florida. And Carolina bays are lakes that are perfectly elliptical and lakes that, uh, as ellipses, have their long axis all pointed in the same uh, in the same direction. And they're kind of fascinating because we still don't know exactly how they were formed, why they have this incredible elliptical shape. And it was, this was one of the things that really spurred me on to write the book. I, I remember the first, and I encourage your readers, to your listeners, to do, to do what I'm about to tell you I did, which was to go to Google Maps and look at a certain part of North Carolina where there are a whole lot of these Carolina bays. So if, if your listeners were to enter Elizabethtown, North Carolina, it's just a small town that has a whole lot of these Carolina bays right, right near it, if you uh, enter that and go into the satellite view, you'll see what I saw, which is these endless series of, of these gorgeous ellipses. Uh, many of these are, in fact, green because the lakes were drained and have since uh, filled in with vegetation. Um, but, but there's just all these beautiful green ellipses everywhere, and, and I was just sort of you know, shocked by that, that I, I, I lived nearby there and didn't even know that they ever existed. Uh, and it's just one of the, the fascinating things that spurred me on to write the book. It is absolutely fascinating. I had a chance to watch a video and knowing that they're all pointing in the same direction as well, same color, same shape, pointing in the same direction. I have so many questions when I get to heaven. Okay, so as we sit and listen to your brilliance, sir, really, I'm just thrilled that you exist on this planet. Um, I know that there are lakes we're really concerned about today, whether it's Salt Lake City in Utah, their right. great Salt Lake, Tahoe City, California, Lake Tahoe. Uh, Lake Michigan in Chicago, and of course, right here in our own backyard, Lake Superior in Duluth. When you look at those, what have you, what have you gleaned about their, um, their coming uh, death? Right. We know right. that they are, they exist. They are living currently, but is obviously a, a death is ahead of them. And how do you know when to write that or when to talk about that? So, I, I mean. The death of a lake is is normally something which takes a very long time. So thousands and thousands of of years is is the process by which a lake uh, will naturally um, be, become eliminated. And this occurs via a very simple process. It's just a simple fact that the flows into lakes carry sediment, and that sediment will settle out when when the flow slows down. And so bit by bit, millimeter by millimeter, lakes tend to, to silt in or fill up, and that's often the demise of a lake, but not something that's a, a, going to occur in our lifetime. But when humans get in the picture, then things can happen um, very rapidly. And you referred to several very large lakes um, just a moment ago, Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. And, you know, with, with our Great Lakes, we're, we're, you know, in the U.S., we're blessed with this enormous body of water, just, just uh, uh, one of the largest bodies of fresh water on planet Earth. And one could be tempted to think that that's, you know, effectively a, a limitless supply, but, but nothing could be, you know, further from the truth. I think something I, I really learned in the process of writing uh, this book is that as big as lakes can be, uh, our thirst for the water in them is 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 much larger, and and probably the best example of that would be um, the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea is actually a, a, a lake. It's located in the boundary between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, 
And uh, it was once uh, one of the largest lakes on Earth, I think the fourth largest lake perhaps by area. And in the 1960s, uh, the then Soviet Union began an irrigation project to get uh, crops, fiber and and food crops growing on the the shores of of the Aral Sea. And so it diverted significant quantities of the the river that, well, the rivers that fed that, that sea. And the process was just devastating. The the sea uh, shrank to to I think one tenth of its original size. It's an incredible natural disaster, man-made disaster that that occurred because the the the, the water line receded so far, hundreds of kilometers in some cases, that what was left behind was just desiccated earth. And uh, the Aral Sea is a saline lake, so the 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 lake bed that was left behind was a, a salty lake bed, so vegetation didn't grow on it very well. And any wind resulted in very large dust storms, which caused enormous health problems uh, with the surrounding population, uh, exacerbated because those lake, the dry lake bed also had now precipitated herbicides and pesticides from the agricultural activities on the shore. So this just caused an incredible uh, natural disaster, and it was due, you know, simply to uh, diverting the flow into the into the ROC uh, for 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 irrigation. And we're seeing a similar thing happen. You mentioned Salt Lake City. This that that's happening with our Great Salt Lakes. Very similar things occurring. Uh, the population in that area is, of course, growing, and more water is is diverted to. Uh, to provide water resources for that thirsty population. And if you combine that with a reduction in snow melt and, and stream flow, you get the same sort of thing. The shore of the, of the lake subsides, and, and you can have, uh, once again, um, severe dust storms and other, other problems that, that occur when, when a, a lake dries up. So in your research, have you discovered that there are some lakes that die and have a rebirth? Well, certainly um, that, 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 that can occur, so, and, and there's good news with the RLC. I mean, the, the disaster is, is attention is being focused to it. Uh, there is great effort to uh, get flow from, from the rivers back to the sea, and, and so I, I am optimistic that that, that sea is, is going to one day return to its, its former self. Okay, so when we look at lakes from this specific uh, perspective, what do you want us to take with this? How do we protect our lakes? Why is it that we don't care enough to do more, or is it that we don't know what to do? I think it's just, uh, you know, once again, if you look at at, at the Great Lakes, right, I mean, if, if you've spent any time along them, uh, you know, even if you're you're not if you're just driving along their shore. I remember when I used to live in Minnesota, I took a uh, a visit to the North Shore, and I mean, it feels like you're driving forever uh, along this this incredibly large lake. And so I, I think it's very tempting to think, well, you know, this is just a natural resource that we simply can't uh, we can't ever um, dry up. But the point of the matter is is we can, and with the Great Lakes. Uh, attempts have been done to do that, you know, to divert water from the Great Lakes via pipelines, to send them mm-hmm. any number of places to pro- mm-hmm. try to um, alleviate droughts in, in various areas. I think this this was proposed in, in places everywhere from New York City to, to Los Angeles. Um, and I think the thing to recognize is, is 
that sort of thing can can have profound damaging consequences. Now, I, th- I think that, you know, I'd like to look at good news, and, and some very good news uh, in North America is that our Great Lakes are now protected by a compact uh, between the United States and Canada. So um, there is now in law the requirement that any use of Great Lakes water can only occur uh, in counties that are within the watershed of the Great Lakes. And, and this is a great thing because it ensures that no matter how much water is withdrawn in those counties, that water ultimately will find its way back uh, to, to the lakes, effectively, uh, I won't say ensuring, but making it very, very unlikely that they will be desiccated in the way that has occurred in other lakes. We have with our um, rivers convergences, right, across the world, really. Um, I think there may be 10 to 15 you would know better. But when it comes to lakes, we don't have something like that necessarily. And I'm just wondering if we uh, keep building or, or offering these man-made lakes. We have quite a few of them here in the Twin Cities and, and the state of Minnesota, as you well know. Um, is that hurting or helping our lakes to have man-made well, lakes? Well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, so, so for the first thing to recognize is that human beings are really prolific lake builders. And uh, the, the, the um, archaeological record suggests that humans have been building dams, uh, making lakes since uh, literally since biblical times. Uh, as soon as human beings slowed down, settled down, and decided to start planting and staying in one place, it seems that not, not long after that, we decided to build a dam to ensure we'd have water nearby. Um, uh, some of the, if you go to Spain, there are actually uh, working functional dams there that are holding water back that were built by the Romans in the first or second century uh, AD. So we do a lot of that. There's just an awful lot of, of, of human-made lakes out there. And, and there's, there's real pluses and minuses for that. So the real pluses are that uh, death due to flooding uh, in places where dams are built to control that is, is, is highly minimized, and that, that's a great thing. It also ensures uh, that we have water in times of drought, or at least mitigates any, uh, any problems caused by drought. But what, what, what can also happen, and what has happened in several large river systems, is that we've impounded so much water that the river actually never makes it to the sea. So uh, mm-hmm. the classic example of that would have to be um, the Colorado River. So we, we have so many uh, impoundments along that river, and we withdraw so much water uh, from it that the Colorado River, which once entered uh, the Gulf of California, you know, it's just a mighty torrent, now barely enters that with a trickle, if at all. And that process is happening in, in many other places, it happens certain times of the year at the Rio Grande. Uh, there's several rivers in, in Australia and other places where, where that happens. And so the, the real problem with that is, is the loss of a river ecosystem. So there are fish species and, and other organisms that require that white water. You know, they require that highly oxygenated water for, as part of their life cycle. And the stretches of rivers that have that are becoming shorter and shorter as we choose to impound, uh, impound more, more and more water. So how much carbon dioxide can a lake absorb, and for how long? Well, um, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I think when we talk about climate change, you know, carbon dioxide um, sequestration by lakes is uh, probably uh, some, somewhat of a small 
smaller player when we compare, you know, when we compare to the to the ocean, right? So the ocean is just, uh, you know, such a, a large surface area compared to the uh, to the surface area of lakes. But but it's not insignificant, and and part of the reason for that is that we there are a lot of very small lakes. So when we look at lake surface area, if you only count the, the larger lakes, which had had been done for quite some time you sort of underestimate the CO2 sequestration by lakes. But if you include the very small lakes, I mean, the things that are perhaps a hectare acre or smaller, that, that number, the surface area gets larger, and, and the sequestration there can become more significant. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned carbon dioxide. There's an, an interesting thing I talk about in the book, which is that carbon dioxide, when it's, uh, it, it's emitted from the ground and, and dissolves into the, the, the bottom waters of a lake, it can cause a very, a very dangerous phenomenon, which is called a limnic eruption. And this, was, this occurred at a lake called Lake Nios in Cameroon, Cameroon in, in 1986, where the carbon dioxide that was dissolved in the bottom of the lake um, came out of solution. All the bubbles, all the carbon dioxide came out as a gas all at once, on the night of August 21st in 1986, and a massive amount of CO2 was released, as much as, uh, I think, a quarter of a cubic mile, and it rushed down the slopes and killed 1,746 people uh, in their sleep in the villages uh, villages below. Mm-hmm. This is just one example of how lakes are, they can be fascinating, they can be mysterious, but they also can be uh, dangerous, something perhaps that we don't think about. We have two minutes left, sir, and I'm just wondering about something you said, that beneath the surface of the many lakes that populate our planet lie wonderful secrets. Tell me, give me one example of a wonderful secret. I think one of the, the, the most interesting secrets is that uh, lakes exist in places you'd never imagine. So uh, the, the, one of the, the best examples of that are, are subglacial lakes. So there are lakes in Antarctica that uh, exists beneath two miles of ice. If you go down through two miles of ice, you'll hit a lake. Uh, there are lakes, hundreds of lakes there. Uh, one called Lake Vostok is about the size of Lake Ontario. It's, a, it's enormous. And the water in that lake has not seen the atmosphere in as many as 10 million years. Oh uh, so it's, it's water that was last exposed to air when, when dinosaurs were walking around, which I think is just a fascinating thing to think about. Well, you are fascinating, sir. It has been a pleasure having you join us, Dr. John Richard Saylor. Thank you so much. The name of the book is Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death. Run to get the book. I know I will be. Thank you again, sir, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Geraldine. It's been a real pleasure. A real pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right, as I take a deep breath and go over all that he taught us, let's take a break. We'll come back. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. 
You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device. Credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome back to Steel Talk, and so great to have you join us tonight. Thank you to every one of our listeners. Um, I do want to mention about um, this incredible uh, Mr. Sailor. He, to me, is quite remarkable, and I know that Minnesota is the land of 14,000 lakes, I believe we have about now, but what can we learn from lakes is really important, and I think most of us, <laughs> you know, those that can, get the book. Get as much information as you can because, you know, he talks about <clears throat> those lakes being born and um, living and dying and um, actually having, you know, life, and no, it, it, enjoying the life. I, I, that's how I see it in my mind as he was talking. And he talks about exploring lakes from around the world. Um, he takes the readers on a journey, it says in his book, to some of the most fascinating lakes, like Antarctica's Lake Vostok, um, whose water hasn't been exposed to the atmosphere in perhaps a million years, but he mentioned one that said 10 million years. Um, lake ba- Bacal, the deepest and oldest lake in the world formed from a rift in the Earth's crust in Siberia, and the so-called Killer Lake. You ever heard of that, Jonathan? Killer Lake? I tend a, to try to stay away from uh, killer lakes. Uh, most things with the word ki- with the word killer in the phrase, try stay to stay away, away from that. Now, <laughs> also if it was lake killer Niles. with an A instead of an ER, then maybe I'd be down with that. But with an ER at the end, did the you killer, say you'd be down with that? Did yeah. you say you'd be down with that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's my um, generation. It's true. Okay, so the so-called killer lake or Lake Nias which ex- exploded, it exploded in 1986 and caused hundreds of, of deaths. Did you know a lake could explode? I, I mean, I, I'm assuming it's, I, I can't even imagine that. I know that a, um, I, 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 a volcano explodes, but that's fire. How I, in the I, world does this explode? I don't think I knew about it until recently, and I was telling you about this during the break. There's a, there was a former TV show actually on CBS called Scorpion, and it followed a team of geniuses based is based on the life, uh, the story of uh, this gentleman who's alive, who's living, and he's I believe got the uh, highest recorded IQ in the world or one of the top three or five, and he built a team of geniuses to go around solving problems and and issues, and on one particular episode. This gentleman, who the real life guy is from Ireland, and the actor who played him was from Ireland as well. Um, they went back to Ireland to visit their, you know, the family, and he's kind of an outcast from the village. But he notices in a lake outside of town that there is a uh, carbon dioxide bubble that's building on the bottom of the lake, mm. and so they have to try to. I guess kind of they they have to drain that gas from the lake so that it doesn't explode into a situation that happening like the one that happened in Cameroon. I won't give away the end of the story, but I I would be stunned 
if they did not pull from that Cameroon tragedy as part of that episode. I'd, I'd be stunned if they didn't because that's it's a I thought I remembered hearing about that incident, but I had forgotten that it happened. Well, this man has, you know, studied or learned so much about so many of the lakes in our in our not just our country, but beyond even, you know, in, in, in Atlanta, they have the Lake Lanier. And I think that was the one where almost all of the lake was gone and they found all of these um artifacts, you know, stuck in the mud and people would walk way out into the middle of that lake and try to, you know, take stuff home. And in the state of Georgia, the government was like, can't do that. We own all of that. You know, <laughs> they were trying to stop people. But it's amazing. Our lakes are amazing. I will look at lakes from a completely different perspective now that I've done this interview with this remarkable man. All right, we're going to take a break and then come back with some weather in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. I'm excited. Um, I believe it was last Sunday or the Sunday before we tried to have Andrea Jenkins, uh, council member, on to discuss cultural districts in Minneapolis, and she is joining us tonight. How are you, Andrea, with your busy self? <laughs> I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing well. My goodness, we've been through a lot since 2020, and you've been at the forefront of some of this. Um, and I'm really curious about cultural districts in Minneapolis. I had heard about them before, read a little bit about them, but can you give us the definition of what a cultural district is? Well, uh, good evening, uh, Geraldine, and to all of your listeners out there Um I'm honored and delighted to be here with you today and that we could finally make it work. Um, cultural districts are parts of town that reflect a certain cultural identity. So, for example, you know, a lot of people travel around and almost every city has a Chinatown. I think that would be considered a cultural district. Um and, you know, um, yeah, in, in Atlanta, there's um, um, sort of the MLK and, you know, sort of all the things that are associated with the King household and Ebenezer Church, like that's a cultural district. But here in Minneapolis, how we have defined cultural districts is a community or a corridor. In fact, we define it as a corridor. Um, so one contiguous street that represents a particular culture, and then the city of Minneapolis will try to uplift and support that culture through business and economic development activities, through supporting cultural um, uh, activities such as, so for example, Broadway Avenue is a designated cultural district. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they do annually is an event called Flow. And um, and so the city, we will try to support that kind of activity by waiving fees for um, police um Protection? Protection and, you know, closing off the street and, you know, getting those waivers that you kind of need to pay for to make those things happen. Um, we also target 
our program called the Commercial Property Development Fund, which helps small business owners to purchase uh, properties that they have their business in, but they don't necessarily own the property. Um, And we only target those funds to um, cultural districts. So we have seven cultural districts in the city of Minneapolis. One is the 38th Street Corridor, which is unfortunately now where George Floyd was murdered. But we have been, you know, that's been a a African-American cultural district for decades and decades. So we're we're really trying to highlight and uplift the the contributions that African-Americans have made um, to this city, particularly along 38th Street. Another cultural district is Lake Street. Then you go down to Franklin which is a Native American sort of cultural district, mm-hmm. Cedar Riverside, Somali, um, Broadway is a more African-American cultural district, and Central Avenue. And so um, uh, Central Avenue and Lowry Avenue. So these are some of the cultural districts that we have identified um, in the city. And we try to prioritize resources, um, prioritize technical assistance, and and really try to highlight and uplift the cultural events that define those communities. Yeah, I think what surprised me the most about this is um, that city officials um, really felt that the desires of the community members um, really wanted to prevent displacement of residents in gentrifying areas. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of shook me when I read that because we know that in so many of these cultural districts, gentrification is real and it is happening, right? So um, with yeah. that said, does it pre- does do the cultural um, districts stop mm-hmm. displacement of residents? Well, you know, we hope it does. You know, I'm not sure if there's one specific way to stop displacement, although I would say that probably the biggest way to try to stop displacement is through ownership, right? And so therein comes our commercial property development fund, which we try to help small business owners uh, who have been in the community, who represent cultural communities, to purchase the building and properties that they live on. In addition, we have home ownership opportunities for um, homeowners along and around those cultural districts to try to ensure that we don't let gentrification displace, excuse me, long-term community members. It's very much a a deep concern, um, and I think we've recognized that and and really trying to bring in some tools to help eliminate that. And and like I said, I think home ownership and ownership, period, is one way to really combat um, displacement. So what type of tools are you speaking of? So one is the Commercial Development Property Loan Fund. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have... um, home ownership opportunities and home ownership support for we do because over here in North Minneapolis there are so many seniors that 
are losing have been losing their homes over you know maybe a decade or so, and it's really disturbing mm-hmm. to me. So I know that um, we're we're looking out for we're trying to define and watch out for. Um, all of the changes that are happening in these cultural districts. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Minneapolis 2040 plan. I was just telling my mm-hmm. in-studio producer earlier tonight, there's always a plan, and they plan way out you know, to make sure there's plenty of time for them to get done what they want to get done. Would you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. So, you know, the 2040 plan, so just for, for pure context, the – Each city in the state is required to submit a 10-year plan every 10 years um, and submit that to the Metropolitan Council Mm -hmm. um, or to the state of Minnesota. So you have to say, how are we going to manage building housing, economic development, sewers, and roads in the next 10 years? The 2040 plan that I think you're referring to is is what we're calling the Minneapolis um, 2040 plan. And that was really designed to, again, help with the displacement that you talked about. By building more housing, we're able to um, lower the cost of housing in the city. And up until now, um, there have been sort of rules and zoning regulations that says Minneapolis can only build single family housing. And if you want to build multifamily housing, you have to get waivers and variances and there's only certain places that you can do this. And so what we did, what the 2040 2040 plan does is eliminate those zoning regulations and allows you to build duplexes, triplexes, multifamily homes all over the city. The mm-hmm. The practice of only building single-family homes was a way to keep white neighborhoods white. You know, if you only have single-family homes and then you redline and you sort of um, uh, obstruct people's opportunity to purchase, you can keep the community white. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about Lorraine Hansberry and her play Raisin in the Sun. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, that was a part of the younger family's um, uh, challenge, right? Is that they couldn't buy a house in the white neighborhood. I mean, they had um, challenges anyway. And that has been a real reality here in Minneapolis. So the 2040 plan, which right now the city is being sued for um, by people who want to maintain the status quo. Um, And, you know, so we are litigating that in court. I think the city is going to prevail. Well, Well, I tell you, I'm I'm surprised that these are seven, excuse me for interrupting, but these seven Mm -hmm. cultural districts, are we ever going to add more of them? You know, I mean, I think they are um, really connected to, we try to do our homework up front. So we have it where we have low-income tracks based on census tracks um, and other, there's a, a process called 
ACP50, uh, which stands for Areas of Concentrated Poverty. So we we looked all around the city, and these were the areas where we found that those um, realities were happening. There's not a lot of other places where that is going on. And if we have so many, if everything is a cultural district, then it really doesn't mean much, right? So I think we want to limit cultural districts at this point and try to really understand uh, how they are functioning and how they are working. And if we need to, I think that's something that we can look at and think about in the future. But right now, I think that we have them in the right place, Broadway, uh, Lake Street, Cedar Riverside, Franklin Avenue, again, the Native American community, um, uh, 38th in Chicago, which is African-American community, which I represent. It includes the Bethany Community Center, George Floyd Square, um, so many black and brown uh, owned businesses that used to be there that are coming back. Um, you know, so I think we have them in some pretty good places. I, I, I will not say that there shouldn't be um, – opportunities to have more in the future. Thank you for that. That's what I was waiting for. Because here's the deal. When you said that funds are being are involved in this, then we should absolutely have more. If there are funds where we could really make a statement with one of the cultural districts, you know, a new one that's coming forward, that sort of thing. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not ask for more? Because really, it's the, the people that live in these cultural districts that have an understanding of what that means and has an understanding. They have an understanding of what living in those districts really mean to them. So that's important. Sure. So even if we mm-hmm. we have seven right now, if we get in, you know maybe three more, I'm not upset about that. If there's funding for it, um, I would love That's to it. see that because it really does move people to say, "I live in this cultural district, and it means a lot to me." And I've heard that before. Yeah, no, that's real. That's very real. And um, you know, we've we've been kind of on the neighborhood um, process in the city of Minneapolis, but never really having districts and so but it's also so like we have the northeast district and i mean um what do you call it um the north loop you know that's oh north loop okay but they don't really need the resources right i mean it's a it's a pretty stable income community um and while it, it is a cultural district there's the baseball stadium, the basketball, the food, the restaurants, um, theaters, and entertainment. Mm-hmm. But they don't need resources. Broadway, Lake Street, Ooh. like they need yeah. that kind of support. Exactly, exactly. Um, I've been reading from an article um, that's called A History of the Minneapolis Cultural Districts by Tiffany Bowie. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. important for us to know exactly what it means uh, when it, when you say cultural districts. I will say that they consider this a national movement, national movement to create cultural districts. In fact, in the article it says cultural districts are a global phenomenon and they come in all shapes and sizes. There are 19 states that have formal cultural district programs like Iowa, Louisiana, and Rhode Island, 
Um, they were early adopters of the policy, according to Tom Borup, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on cultural districts. So for me, <laughs> when you read something like that, that means not enough of us know about cultural districts districts, and uh, it's something I would love to to hear more about and, and maybe even talk more about on my show. And I'm just hoping I that... Oh, Tom is local, right? You know, Tom Burrup lives in this community, lives and works mm-hmm. here. Um, he's married to uh, Harry Waters Jr., who I think you may yeah. know or be familiar with. Um, and so, you know, I would love to come on and talk with uh, Tom and you and talk well, about. We'll see. District. We'll see if we can make that happen. I'm so sorry we run out of time, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us. Council member Andrea Jenkins um, has been joining us and I really appreciate you giving us your thoughts. You take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You too. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll be back soon. Welcome back, everyone. We just have a few seconds here, and I just want to let you know, Center Stage is next. All things arts and entertainment, we just believe you ought to know about it. Sandy Bourne Barrett is going to start it off. She's the Artistic Director of Stages Theater Company and Director of what? The Little Mermaid Junior. What is Junior? Can't wait to find out. Stay tuned. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's better After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.